0: It probably didn't surprise you at this point that they've continued to move away from trusting God and wanting power for themselves instead of acknowledging him. And what I want to do here is just to say that while we might be tempted to move past this and, and see ourselves as being different, the truth of the matter is that we need to study them so that we can identify the patterns of our own sin. We see this huge shift in 1 Samuel 8 as the Israelites tell Samuel that they want a king. Samuel takes this personally, but God is quick to reassure him, and this is what he says: Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And that's the heart of all of this pride, all of this sin, all of this selfish ambition that they that we have, that makes us reject God. It's when we refuse to see that He really is our King. And He knows that they're going to do this, He knows that we are going to, He's given us that freedom. And when the people ask for a king, you see what he says to Samuel. Tell them they're gonna regret it. They're making a mistake, but they don't care. They want what they want, and so they say, listen, all the other nations have kings. We want kings. But the whole point is, he brought them here to be set apart, to look different, and they wanna look like everyone else. So they persist. And God tells Samuel, Give them what they want. And it's an interesting phrase, actually, if we study this. In chapter eight, verse 22, it says, obey their voice and make them a king. So he's gonna allow them to see what life is like in this ideal world where they have all the power and they're ruling over things. Saul is elected, he's handsome, he's tall, he's strong. From earthly standards, he really fits all of these great criteria for a king. But God doesn't judge according to what we see. He judges based on the heart. And Saul's heart was not for God. says, it's not the end of the world for you, even though you stooped pretty low. And in chapter 12, we hear him say this to them. If you obey God, if you do what he tells you, things are going to be fine. And if you don't, they will not be. Then he calls on God who brings rain and thunder. And of course that totally impresses them. And they realize that they're in a bit of a predicament because wait, God actually is that powerful. And now they're freaking out a little and they ask Samuel to pray for them. They call it exactly what it is. It's sin. They realize that they have made an evil decision and they are begging for mercy. And what does Samuel say in response? Don't abandon him for these empty things that cannot profit or deliver for they are empty. They're not real. The word alludes to confusion, to chaos. It It alludes to the lack of anything of true substance. These things are not gonna help you in the long run. They can't rescue you. So here's the deal. You can't have two true kings. There's only room for one. Who are you going to serve? And I have to ask the question, and I hope you do too, what does this look like in your life? Where are you worshiping a false master? Maybe it's a job or a person. Maybe it's a desire that you've elevated to the position of king. We've all got them and as we're about to see there is one critical difference in how we deal with them and it's what matters in the end. Saul continues making bad decisions and eventually God intervenes and he explains in chapter 13 verse 14 that he has sought out a man after his own heart. That man will be David who we read about all this week and as you can clearly see he was not a man without flaws either. He had a spare share of sin. So what was different? One thing and one thing only, true repentance. Not, not the kind of I'm sorry that happens when you hear thunder and rain and you think you might be in trouble. It's not the kind of I'm sorry that comes when you're a wicked king and you wanna hold on to your throne. It's not the I'm sorry that sees God like a vending machine and tries to cash in when things get uncomfortable. It's the pure expression of someone who understands the way that he or she has breathed the heart of God. It isn't saying, I'm sorry because I want something or because I want to avoid something. It's it's not about us at all. True repentance is about God. It's us saying to him, I failed to make you king. And as much as these consequences wound me, they don't touch the pain that comes from realizing how they've wounded you. When Saul was told that he was gonna lose his position as king, we hear him apologize to Samuel. Samuel. Tells him that his days are over as a ruler. And he responds with these words. I have sinned. I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. He said all the right words. I mean, if we look at this, he, he used big words. I mean, he said, transgressed, and he's honest about his motivation. I was I was affected by the people, and so. All these factors, they add up to the perfect confession combo, right? Wrong. Because all the words in the world don't change a heart that refuses God. And his did. God knew he wasn't sorry. He knows the heart. And when David sins, we see similar words. In Psalm 51, he's crying out to God after being confronted about adultery and his role in murder. And he says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Again, he begs for mercy. He even uses the word transgression. He's hitting all the right points, right? But he's calling me in after God's own heart. Why? Because he truly understood that he had offended a holy God. True repentance doesn't have selfish motive. It simply has selfless acknowledgement. I got to see what this looks like in person. Uh, My daughters, Ellie and Abby, were about four years old. Let me start by saying I asked their permission, and I am allowed to tell this story. But we used to do this little thing where at night I would go into their rooms, and I would sit on their beds, and I would say, all right, I want each of you to tell me one thing that you're grateful for, one thing that you want to pray about, and one thing that you're sorry about from today. And so on this one particular night, my sweet daughter Ellie crossed her little fingers and closed her eyes and she started out. And she said, Lord, I just want to thank you for the sunshine today. And I want to pray that tomorrow is another beautiful day. And I want to say that I'm sorry that I hit Abby in the face. But I did it because she stole my toys. And because she <laughs> looked at me like that. And because, and all of a sudden she goes into this tirade of all these things that Abby has done to me. And I started laughing. But it was only for a few minutes that it was really that funny to me. Because the truth of the matter is I think a lot of times I apologize, it was sort of that same agenda. This kind of like, God, I'm so sorry I did this, but clearly you see why I did it. And there were all of these other factors, It's really my fault. I'm not fully responsible for it. None of us are going to be perfect. David would not go on to be perfect. And we obviously see these clear consequences of his sin. He loses a child, he, he isn't allowed to build this great temple, his son Solomon ends up building it. And Unfortunately Solomon doesn't have the same heart for God that he did. The kingdom splits apart and eventually the Israelites are taken from their land into captivity. During the time before the captivity all return of a portion of the Israelites. God raises up prophets to warn the people. And, and their goal is really to urge the people to remember God and to honor him. Now let's think about this. We've seen chapters and chapters filled with disregard, with disbelief, with disrespect for God. We've watched towers being raised and cities being swallowed. If it were a movie, we would be furious at the antagonist by this point. We've seen this loving groom take on his unfaithful wife over and over again. He's stood by her. She's cheated on him. She's snuck away in her sin. She's offered herself to the highest bidder. She doesn't care about Hosea. And in the movie version that maybe we see in our minds, there is no cinematic score that could bring us to a place where we even care what happens to her next. She's had her chance. She's had more chances than we can count. If we were watching the movie, we would be tempted to just say, give up, Hosea. She doesn't want anything to do with you. You've tried. But God is an altogether different director, isn't he? In the book of Hosea, we see Hosea track down his wife. And as she goes up for auction, he takes out the money that he has brought with him, and he ransoms her. Don't miss the subtle language that happens right before this, though. It is so beautiful. God is telling Hosea what he wants him to do. And keeping in mind that Hosea's relationship with Gomer is symbolic of God's with the church, listen to what God says. And the Lord said to him, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man. He doesn't say, go get your wife. You've got a contract that says she's your wife. Go on and get her. No, he says, go again. Love a woman. This ungrateful, selfish, unfaithful bride. He'll ransom her because he loves her. And as the Old Testament closes, things are chaotic. They're spinning out of control. His bride has made it clear she wants nothing to do with him. She wants another king. She wants any other king. He's refused him over and over and over again. And where we would just be likely to shake our heads and turn our backs. He does nothing of the sort. The next time we open our Bibles, 400 years will have passed. And we will be staring at the face of a husband, standing before the bride he loves. Offering the highest ransom that has ever been paid. So that he can bring her home once and for all.
1: I need, need some tissue. You know, I actually told Brian this week, just if I upset you, just be glad you're not there <laughs> Okay, so I told you that the book of Jonah really spoke to me this week, and so I want to share with you why. And I want to read a little bit from it, so uh, let's turn there. If If you don't mind going to the book of Jonah, it's really short, so it's likely you'll pass right over it, right after Obadiah. I love the book of Jonah, I think, because it's about God's compassion. Whenever I hear about God's compassion, it so speaks to me, because God made me a person that requires and needs a lot of compassion. Compassion is my language, and God gave me a grandfather that, oh, he was just compassion with skin on, and he was such an example of Christ to me. So this story speaks a lot to me because of God's compassion. Um, Jonah is a prophet to the northern tribes of Israel at this time, the ten, tri- the ten tribes in the northern kingdom. And he's a Hebrew. And at this time, normally prophets were speaking to the Jews about what God, God has told them to say. You need to do this or this is going to happen. Oh, it, you know, Israel, you need to turn back to God. Um, and also, the prophets were very quick to lay out God's judgment on the Gentiles. The Gentiles were their antagonists, basically. And so this story of Jonah um, is very interesting because for the first time, God is asking a prophet not only to prophesy what is going to happen to the Gentiles, but to actually go. So he says to Jonah, God sent Jonah to go, actually, to the Gentiles instead of just saying what God was going to do. So let's read a little bit of this. I want to start in Jonah chapter 1. 1 through 3 with the commission from God. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, "Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me." But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. I find it interesting that he calls up the evil of the Gentiles and he asks Jonah to go. And Jonah goes down to Joppa to go away from the Lord. Do you see the verbiage in here? It's very pictorial from the Lord and presenting where Jonah is and his commission from the Lord to go to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is in Assyria. It's the capital of Assyria. So he's asked to go from the northern kingdom of Israel up to Assyria. Instead, he goes down to Joppa and tries to hop a boat to Spain. He's going to run from the Lord. And you, and you look at Jonah and you're like, what a fool. But how many times in my life have I attempted to run from the Lord when he's commissioned me to do something? So Jonah runs from God and he and he meet, he pays his fare on this boat and I'm just going to summarize a little bit what happens and he comes upon these sailors and he gets on the boat and I find it very interesting Jonah Jonah actually falls asleep and there's a st- God sends a wind and it's it's just treacherous on the sea and all the sailors are panicking and it's dangerous and they cast lots like what's happening and they go and they wake up Jonah and they figure out from casting the lots which is a whole another lesson um, there and they go and they wake him up and he Jonah claims, yeah, it's because of me. This storm is here because of me. He runs, but he knows. He knows that God knows where he is and that it's God. It's He's, he's the problem here. So he says, throw me over, just toss me out. And they know this God of Israel and they're afraid. No, we don't. We don't. We don't want to. We don't want to throw you over. You. You fear your God. Well, we fear him, too. So they try to paddle, and it doesn't work. And so finally they throw him over. over. And, the, and then in verse 17, it says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. This is God's compassion. I know you're thinking, what? Stomach acid?
0: <laughs>
1: but if you read later in, in the prayer in chapter 2 when Jonah cries out, He's entangled in the depths of the sea and he's, and he's being taken down by seaweed. You see, God appointed the fish to swallow up Jonah. He it was, it was his salvation. If God had not appointed a fish to swallow up Jonah, he would have drowned. So this is God's compassion saving Jonah from the depths of the sea. Away, he was away from God, and God pointed a fish to bring him back up. And then you you can read further, and actually when Jonah cries out and he repents to the Lord, he sends the fish and vomits him, that's what the scripture says, (laughs) vomits him up on shore and commissions him again. So let's read that. In chapter 3, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. And call out against in the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. He decided to obey. According to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breadth, Walking. Jonah began to go into the city. Going on a day's journey. And he called out. Yep, yeah, this is, you know, Jonah. Now, remember, the the prophets, they liked to prophesy against the Gentiles. They loathed the Gentiles. They were not God's people. In fact, they were pretty nasty in what they were doing. So it wasn't God, I mean, Jonah, it wasn't that he feared what would happen to him. He wanted the wrath upon Nineveh. He didn't want their salvation, but he obeys God because God asked him to. And he fears the Lord. He cries that out in chapter 2. So he goes, and I can just imagine Jonah, let's just get this over with, Lord. And he goes one day into the city, one day's walk. So he's not even into the center, center of the city, and he says, all right, let's get this over with. And what does he say? He says, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And then the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. He arose from his throne. you got to look at all the verbs in here. It's so key. So the king of Nineveh arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles let neither man nor beast, herd or flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink of water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. I love this. So here an evil king realizes who God is and the mercy and compassion that God is willing to do pour over them. Instead of destruction, God provides salvation. So he, he says everybody, including every animal, is going to be obedient in this. God shows compassion and they respond. They respond to his compassion. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. God shows compassion on this evil group of people, his children. He shows them compassion. And then let's see what Jonah does. Chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. So here we have God's compassion and Jonah's anger in the compassion that God showed the evil people, these evil Gentiles. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord. Okay, this is why Jonah did not go in the, to, the, you know, to begin with to Nineveh. And he confesses it here. It wasn't his fear. He says, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in his steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I think he's blaming God for his mercy. <laughs> Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Didn't he just get saved? And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city. And he sat in the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would come of the city. So what is he doing? He's going to, he's waiting. He's waiting for the wrath to be handed down to the evil Gentiles in the city of Nineveh. I mean, he just cried out, oh, Lord, you're slow to anger, you're merciful, you're steadfast in your love. I cannot wait to see your wrath. <laughs> and that's what he's doing. He makes this little house for himself out there. It's hot, it's uncomfortable, but he, he, he goes out and he waits to see the wrath. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort, compassion. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Here again we have God appointing. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And here goes Jonah. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. (laughs) And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came in being in the night and perished in the night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Okay, so Jonah, he, has, he wants wrath to be laid out on the city of Nineveh, and they're quite deserving of his wrath. They're evil. They don't worship God. They don't turn to God. They worship other gods, and they're gross, and they're evil, and the things that they do, and they're Gentiles, right? But God shows him mercy and compassion, and He allows Jonah to be a part of it. And Jonah is obedient second time around, but he goes and he sits and he waits for the wrath of God. And then God, God, then God shows compassion on him, his this man that has obeyed Him, and He shows him compassion and gives Jonah a chance. And then the next day, he's still waiting there for the wrath of God, and his heart hasn't changed. His heart hasn't aligned with the heart of God, and so God lifts His blessing. From Jonah. And then Jonah says, I just want to die. And God says, Jonah, how can you you, you lay there in pity, but you and you pity your you, the blessing relieved from you, but you can't show pity upon these children of mine? And then God kind of jabs them and goes, Okay, maybe the cattle, maybe at least you'll show compassion to the cattle. But I can relate to Jonah, sadly. I might be obedient, but is my heart always aligned with the heart of God in my obedience? See, if we we don't, and when I don't have my heart aligned with the compassion in God's heart, I miss out on his glory. God got the glory. This evil city cried out to him and he removed his wrath and instead gave him compassion. He was glorified. But Jonah didn't want that, he wanted the wrath. He wanted to see judgment upon these evil people, and he missed out on the glory of God. And God provided blessings. and what happened was God took his blessing away. I think about myself, and I think about our nation, So do you know where Nineveh is in modern day? It's modern day Iraq, where ISIS is camped. How many of us can't wait for the wrath to be laid out on these people? We're sitting there and we're waiting, and how many of us cry out, Lord, just come tomorrow, I'm ready to die. I said it. Look at our culture, Lord. Look at ISIS, they're evil, they're horrible, and their actions are. But what if I align my heart to the heart of God and hate the sin and love the people and have the compassion that God has and I get to experience his glory? What if I even get to be a part of that? So years ago I shared with you, I got to go to Lebanon and I was Jonah. I love the people of Lebanon. That's where my dad's from. However, I had read this book that opened my eyes to the demonic evil in these Muslim men and I hated them. I loved these women and I thought I can go and I can save these women from this evil. Lord, let me do that, you know? And I go and I'm standing in Tripoli where all these refugees from Syria and evil, demonic, Muslim beliefs being laid out on the people, women getting raped, children getting raped. It's happening. It's evil. And you are ready for the wrath of God, right? Can I just take the women and then lay out your wrath? <laughs> That's how I felt. Let me get these kids and these women, and I'm going to get them all out, and we're going to take them over here, and then wham, you lay out your wrath. And I'm standing on the streets of Tripoli because with my dad because this is where he grew up. He played soccer in those streets. And I'm standing there and and I'm I'm looking at him, look, and he's broken because his people are lost and his city is destroyed and trashed and no value. And God totally took my heart and allowed my heart to be aligned with his in that moment. And you have to see them through my eyes how are you going to get these how are you going to allow these women to survive if we can't love them in oh that was a heavy lesson for me i was so jonah and how many times did i read the book of jonah what a fool <laughs> what a fool that i was a fool because it's so easy to sit and judge it's so easy to judge evil right I mean, I'm not talking, this is demonic evil that deserves wrath, but I deserve wrath. They're a child of God, I'm a child of God. See, in this book of Jonah, he appoints his creation four times. He appoints the fish, he appoints the plant, he appoints the worm, and he appoints the scorching wind. So looking at Jonah, who is God? Who is God in the story? He's a God of love. He shows his love. He's a God of compassion. He shows his compassion. He is a God that craves repentance. He's just. And what do they do? They cry out in repentance, and God shows his compassion. And he's sovereign. He's a sovereign God. And he is a creator God who has sovereign control over all creation. The story of Jonah is, I mean, you can look at it and easily think, what a fool, but I'm such a fool. And so I ch- my challenge That I am challenging myself, that I challenge you, is to cry out to God and say, Lord, I know you crave and honor obedience, but also align my heart to your heart. (coughs) We have to breed compassion in our nation. There's so much hatred. We want the wrath to be poured out over there. But if we align our hearts to his hearts, we can breed compassion and hate the sin and love the people. And I think that we could be used in such mighty ways. For his glory. I don't want to be sitting there pouting. Missing out on his glory. I want to be a part of it. Part of it. Part of it.